The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. Wonderful to be with everyone this morning. I'm so encouraged by your presence and, and edified by the worship this morning. I hope you have as well. And it's my prayer that the lesson this morning will be a benefit to you as well. Um, I did want to mention before I got started uh, that next week, starting next Sunday, the 84th Street Congregation is doing their preacher's training program, but that also functions as a gospel meeting. And every morning, mid-morning, around 10 or 10.30, I forget, they'll have a lesson. Um, but also at 7 o'clock in the evening, they'll have a lesson. And it's going to be over the book of Romans, so there will be some um, sermons from Romans, but also um, the error of Calvinism, and I think that would be very beneficial uh, if you have the time and, and desire. I encourage you to go there. I'll try to remember um, this afternoon to print off that schedule and have it hung up on our bulletin board, and, and that'll be at your disposal. Also, I wanted to mention um, last Wednesday, I think I mentioned my dad and his his tests, and he got his tests done on Thursday, and all those tests came back um, negative for um, cancer coming back up. He's still in remission, and he'll continue to have those tests as, as we go on, and it's our prayer that it stays in remission for as long as possible, and so I ask that you continue to keep him in your prayers. It's uh, prayer, prayer is a powerful thing, and it was powerful when he was diagnosed, and then the treatments, and how he reacted to those, and, and we continue to see the power of, of prayer as God's providence is activated, and, and he's continually cared for, and ask that you would continue in that. You know, when spiritual conflict arises, and it's a matter of when, not if, it requires for us to choose a side. And there may appear to be several sides. For example, if there is a spiritual conflict that arises within a local congregation, there may be three or four opposing views. Now, we only we know that only one can possibly be right if they're all in conflict, but maybe all four of them or all three of them or just two of them are wrong. But when it comes down to it, there are only two sides to choose, and that is God or Satan, righteousness or unrighteousness, obedience or disobedience, sin or walking the right path that God has given for us. But some, when spiritual conflict arises, instead of choosing one of those two sides, they think of a third side that is neutral. They don't choose a side, or at least they don't voice their, their conviction if they have any at all. They, they just kind of sit there and they're silent about it. They don't do anything that would show anybody in any way that they are on the side of truth or on the side of error. They're, it's a toss-up. And and we may have experienced that before, where there is some kind of a conflict. I know that y'all have experienced church conflict in the past, and, and maybe there was someone who you just really didn't know where they stood, whether it was on the side of truth or whether it was on the side of error because they didn't ever really voice themselves and show where they stood. And I want to suggest to you that that's unacceptable as Christians. Silence is not something that God is pleased with. And oftentimes, that's how neutrality takes place, is, is silence. No one would know whether the person who is silent is one who stands for truth or stands for the error that is being taught or the sin that is being committed because they're just in a neutral zone. 
And that's a, a loophole that they try to look for sometimes. Some people don't like conflict. And, and really, to be honest, I think most of us don't like conflict. But some never reach that point where they want to get out of their comfort zone when conflict arises because it demands action. And the only place that they can remain is that neutral zone. If they take the side of truth, inevitably the ones on the side of error are going to be angered toward them or view them differently. If they take the side of error, even if it's their firm conviction, you know they're going to be at enmity with those on the side of truth. Regardless of the, the error or the, the sin or the conflict, a side must be chosen, and that means you're at opposition with other people and maybe even opposition with God, whether you know it or not. I want to tell you that neutrality is not as neutral as we may like it to be. Consider in Obadiah, verse 10, Obadiah being just one section, one chapter, when Edom is mentioned as being neutral in a situation. In Obadiah 10 and 11, it says that for violence your bro against your brother Jacob, that is Israel, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. If we stop there, we might wonder, what in the world did Edom do? Verse 11 kind of tells us, and the day that you stood on the other side, and the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. Now, if we continue reading, we know that we, we see they took advantage of the plundering of Israel by her enemies, that Edom took advantage of their desperate state and, and took from them and took advantage of them in that situation. But he said, you stood on the other side. In other words, you just sat and watched. You were in essence in a neutral position you weren't the people who were in jerusalem being attacked and you weren't defending them but you certainly weren't the people that were doing the attacking you just kind of were sitting idly by as a bystander the new american standard bible says on the day that you stood aloof which means afar off you just kind of weren't involved you were neutral but he says even you're as one of them they took a neutral position but in taking a neutral position, they actually set themselves up on the side of the attackers. In Matthew 12 and verse 30, Jesus mentions a similar thing. When to the Pharisees, he said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Matthew 12, 30. The context we might remember is when this man that is demon-possessed is healed by Jesus. Jesus casts out the demon. And the Pharisees, not wanting to believe that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament, said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And Jesus goes on to show the contradiction in their logic. What, is, what sense does it make if, if Jesus claiming to be against Satan actually casts out Satan's workers? That doesn't make sense. A house divided against itself will fall. It cannot stand, Jesus goes on to say. But the idea of the Pharisees is that they're on the side of God, even though re they're rejecting the Christ who is is shown to be the Christ by the miracles that he's performing by the Spirit of God, like we just read in Acts chapter 2. He's a man attested by God to you by signs, wonders, and various miracles. He did it in your midst. You yourself know, and the Pharisees had this idea that they could be in a kind of a neutral position where I'm not accepting this man Jesus as the Christ, but I'm still doing God's work as a spiritual leader in Israel. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. And he could have said, if you're not for God, you're against God. You're not for God's Messiah, you're not for God. The only other place is being against God. 
Neutrality really is just a form of lukewarmness. We read of that in Revelation 3 with the church of the Laodiceans who are lukewarm. And we remember what Jesus did to them. He spewed them or vomited them out of his mouth. We've got to pick a side. And if we pick the false or faux side of neutrality, in essence, we're choosing the side opposite of God. Neutrality certainly is a sin, and we need to avoid it. I want us to consider, though, why some people take that side. Why they seek for that loophole, and then they think that if they just sit back and they don't say anything, they don't do anything, they're just there, and no one knows where they are, that they're going to be okay that way. One of the reasons I think that people choose neutrality is they want to provide for peace and unity. And I think that's a noble act. We want to pr- provide for peace and unity. And, and the Bible instructs us to do so. In Matthew 5 and verse 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. As children of God, we don't look for conflict. We don't look for strife. We look for peace. We want to be at peace with all men. Romans 12 and verse 18 instructs us to do so. If it is possible... As much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Unity is in the same situation where we're instructed to and encouraged to and commanded to provide for unity. John 17 and verse 20 in Jesus' prayer before going to his death, he said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And this is his prayer, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. It's not God's desire that we be divided, but it's his desire that we be united just as God the Father and God the Son, and you could throw in there God the Holy Spirit, are united. They are three persons that partake in the same divine nature. There's one God. He, or Deuteronomy 6, the Shema that the Jews often quoted, the Lord our God is one. We shall worship our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul said to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's nothing wrong with wanting to provide for peace and unity. But I want to tell you it's impossible to do that by taking the position of neutrality. And that's what people think. If I speak up for the truth, or or let's just say what I'm convicted of, I, I've studied and I've convicted of it, and you got to take one side, and, and maybe you believe it's the truth. If, if I do that, and I don't just kind of let this pass, then there's going to be conflict. There's not going to be a time of peace. We're not going to be unified, because I'm going to be voicing my, my conviction that is contrary to the conviction of these other people, this other view. And so in order to keep the peace, I'm just going to sit back. And they may not know that I don't agree with them, but they don't know that I don't or that I do agree with them. No one, no one's wiser. And, and we take this neutral position. And if everybody does this, then we can just go along to get along. We, we preserve the peace and we provide for the unity. But I want us to see in these two texts that peace for the sake of peace is not what God desires. And unity for the sake of unity is not what God desires. Peace for the sake of peace and unity for the sake of unity is not in reality Biblical peace and biblical unity. Notice in Romans twelve eighteen, as we read, he says, if it is possible, sometimes it's not possible, we can't be at peace doctrinally with those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. It's impossible. We're not at peace with the outside world. We're not at peace with erring brethren. 
We're not at peace with brethren who are in sin until they come out of that sin and are reconciled to God because if they're in enmity with God and we're in fellowship with God, then they're at enmity with us. There can't be peace. We can't preserve peace by taking a neutral position. It's not possible. He said, if it is possible, live at peace. In Ephesians 4 and verse 3, we see that he says we're to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. And that bond of peace is how that happens But notice there, the unity is in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals the Word of God. And if unity is something like unity and diversity, where you're teaching different doctrines and you're just going along to get along, that's not true unity. The unity God desires and demands is in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, we see what that looks like, where Paul uh, approaches and addresses sectarianism. And he says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1, 10, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. He's not saying be neutral. And if everyone's neutral, then you're going to be able to do this. He's saying be in the word of God. Ephesians 2 speaks of unity. Ephesians 2 speaks of peace between God and man and between Jew and Gentile. And we notice how that was accomplished. Ephesians 2 and verse 14 says that he himself, that is Christ, is our peace. He has made both one. There's unity. And he has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who were near. Peace through neutrality is actually just avoided conflict. I'm just avoiding the conflict. I'm not going to do anything about it. And so there's peace. That's not true. It's actually just avoiding the problem. And unity, in the case of neutrality, is simply ignored differences. There's not really unity that exists. It's just a perception of unity because no one's taking any kind of side. And that's why people take a neutral position. But I want us to suggest another reason why people take a neutral position. And I think that most times this is what is involved and it's the sin of cowardice they they don't have a boldness to go out and stand for the truth and we're exhorted not to be cowardly we're exhorted to not shrink in the midst of adversity and conflict and opposition which is exactly what we do if we take the neutral position in matters of conflict regarding spiritual things hebrews 10 and verse 35 addresses a people who are shrinking in the fear of persecution and allowing that persecution to cause them to turn back to things that are sin and error. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, Hebrews 10, 35, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. He quotes from Habakkuk 2, for yet a little while and he who is coming will come and not tarry Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. I want us to notice that word confidence in verse 35. He says, don't cast away your confidence. That's a word that is translated boldness in other places, but literally what it means is all outspokenness, frankness, bluntness, publicity. And that's what we're to be as Christians. We leave no doubts about what we believe. We confess Christ before men and he'll confess us before the Father. 
when we speak about a specific sin or a specific error or doctrine, and we, we speak about a specific teaching of Christ or a position spiritually, people have no doubt because we've been outspoken about it. People know our conviction on the matter, especially when it comes down to spiritual conflict within a local congregation. Which side are you on? Well, I'm on the side of truth and this is why. And, and I'm not afraid to say it. That's what he's saying. Don't be afraid to speak. Don't cast away what you had before with your boldness. You are willing to, to speak Christ before whoever it was. But now you've got people who are threatening your life and, and you're not so outspoken anymore. You're not so confident. You're not so bold. Don't cast that away. Don't shrink. Don't take a neutral position. Revelation 21 and verse 8 list several sins which those who are the offenders of such will take part of the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death and the first sin is the cowardly that word cowardly is the same word translated into fear in matthew 8 and verse 26 when jesus rebukes the waves of the sea and then rebukes his disciples who grew fearful he said to them why are you fearful it's the same word why are you so cowardly Oh, you have little faith. When we fail to speak up and we take a neutral position, we're showing a lack of faith in Jesus, who, if we took his side, is standing right before us in full force of the truth. We need to look to Jesus, who didn't take the cowardly way out. He didn't ever take a neutral position, but he always spoke the truth in love, regardless of the conflict and the trouble that it would cause him or irritants that would be placed in the minds of others who would therefore be cut to the heart by the word. Hebrews 12 and verse 3 says, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And then lastly, I think a big reason, probably the greatest reason for neutrality along with cowardice and a, a provision in a wrong area for peace and unity is simply the rejection of or the ignorance of the nature of truth. You know, I've even heard myself say before, and I think it's an accurate saying to a degree, depending on the context, that truth doesn't divide ever. Error is the one that divides. When you talk about a, a, a split in a church, and it's a doctrinal split, a, or a split over some moral thing, a, a sin that people took the wrong side on, and, and a congregation is split, those who would blame the ones standing on the side of truth for that split are wrong. Because error is what caused the problem. If everyone was on the side of the truth, that church would still be unified. They would still be at peace because they're, they're endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4.3. Really, it's the error that caused that division. And so it's, it's right to say in a certain context that truth doesn't divide, error divides. But I want to tell you that that's not always the case. That in fact, inherent within the nature of truth is division. And we've got to learn to accept that. I want us to notice in Hebrews 4 and verse 12, what Jesus said, or what the Hebrew writer says about the word of God. He says that the word of God is living and powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. He's saying that the sword of God, which is the word of God, has a dividing power. Now here what it's going to do is it's going to divide your thoughts and intents. It's going to show who you really are in the judgment. Isn't that what it does here before the judgment? 
Jesus said, my word will judge you in the last day in John 12, 48. But in a way, it's actually making judgments now. It's, it's dividing those who are going to insist that they live in sin and persist in that sin and error or those who are going to come out of that in repentance and follow the truth. And you know, we who as the pillar and ground of the truth, 1 Timothy 3.15, and those who are abiding in the truth because it sets us free from sin, John 8.31-32, through 32, need to accept this very real nature of truth, that it's something that divides. Jesus speaks of the sword in Matthew 10 and verse 34 and says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter-in-law, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. And he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Luke records this same time of Jesus speaking. And he speaks of the fact that Jesus came to bring division. He came to divide. He came to to tear asunder, if you will, those who want to live for God and those who truly don't want to live for God. And when the word of God is preached, it will divide the thoughts and intents. And it will show right then and there, at least to a great degree, some may be dishonest and fool us all until judgment. Then we'll know. Then God will know. But at that point in time, people got to take a side. And... That's what the truth is for, in part. It's to weed out, if you will. John 17 and verse 17 shows the dividing nature of the word of God. When Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The whole idea of sanctity, of holiness, of being sanctified is being divided. Being divided from the world. Being divided from those who are in sin. Being divided from those who aren't children of God. We need to accept it. And therefore, always take the side of truth, no matter what kind of division it causes. Notice in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 19, what the Apostle Paul said, that there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. He was speaking about divisions within the church of Corinth and and how they were wrong in doing so, certainly when they were not waiting for each other for the Lord's Supper. But he, he establishes a general truth about division. This is not a time, he's saying, where you should be divided. You should wait on one another, take the Lord's Supper at the same time. You should do that and observe it as the memorial that it is. But sometimes, you know, it's necessary that division comes. And it's not necessary in the sense of division is inherently good within within itself, but those who are approved will be recognized in division. People are going to know who's standing for the truth and who's dishonest. People are going to know who really loves God. We see the same in 1 John 2 and verse 19 when those people who were preaching error among John's audience went out from us, John says. They were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. They left, and it's not your fault. You're not in the wrong. You're abiding in the truth. They went out, and I want to suggest to you there's a tone of God's providence in this, They went out, push came to shove, and they showed themselves, showed you, and showed God who they really were by going out. They didn't want to be a part of the truth anymore. That's what the truth does. It shows who's right with God. You know, neutrality, it doesn't show that you're on the 
right side. It shows that you are against Christ. That's why Christ said in Matthew 12, 30, He who is not with me is against me. If you're taking a neutral position, you're not with Christ. You may think that you're not with the side of error or sin because you're in the middle, but you're definitely not with Christ. If you're with Christ, you're going to confess Him. We're going to speak the truth. We're going to stand up for God's will. But he who is not with Christ is against Christ. We must pursue peace and unity, but never at the expense of truth and clarity. I want us to notice three areas that we need to avoid neutrality. And certainly overall, the general idea is always be on the side of truth, never on the side of error, and never just in an in-between gray area where no one really knows where you are except God. Always take the side of truth. But I want to suggest to you we need to avoid neutrality in sin. Our approach to sin, our discussions of sin, our convictions of sin, they need to be as the nature of sin is. Absolute. In 1 John 1 and verse 10, it says that if we, make, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And I'm convicted that this context is not suggesting just saying we haven't sinned ever, like Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's a person in sin, someone's telling them they're in sin, and that person, knowing the scripture that says what they're doing is sin, says, I have not sinned, and you make him a liar. Why? Because his word said this was sin, and you are saying, no, it isn't sin, so who's wrong? You're saying Jesus is wrong. You make him a liar, and his word is not in us. There's an objective nature of sin. There's, there's a clarity of sin, and that's why 1 John 3 and verse 4 says that sin is lawlessness. There is a law, and if the law says you shall do this or you shall not do this, and you, you do it when it says don't do it or you don't do it when it says do it, that is sin, and it's plain as day. And our discussions and considerations of sin need to be objective and absolute in that same way. You know, sometimes neutral neutrality in regard to the discussions of sin is taken by silence, as we talked about before. But sometimes people who take a neutral position on sin can be vocal about their thoughts, but, but they raise more questions than answer questions. Have you ever come across someone who's talking about, about something, and, and you may be convinced that it's sin, or maybe you're, you're trying to seek the truth. Is it sin or is it not sin? Is there anything with, wrong with what I'm doing? And, and they give you this answer that leaves you with, with no answers. You go away thinking, I didn't learn anything. I wish you would have just told me that the Bible says this is sin or the Bible says this is okay. And now you just, you didn't get any answers. Maybe it was a gray area for you and you sought someone with more wisdom and they didn't give you any kind of answers. That's a neutral zone. And it's likely that the person that did that told you what he told you or she told you because they didn't want to hurt your feelings. They didn't want you to be at enmity with them. They didn't want to raise any kind of, of ruckus or conflict. So they just told you kind of this vague thing and, and didn't really take any side, weren't clear at all. That's how neutrality looks with discussions of sin. Romans 7 and verse 7 tells us, going along with 1 John 3 and verse 4, what sin is, how it is defined. When Paul said, I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. It's plain as day covetousness someone says is what i'm doing sinful and what they describe as covetousness we can plainly and clearly tell them yes you are in sin and you need to stop and you need to ask god for forgiveness because the bible says you shall not covet and we can't put a different label on sin when we do that we're taking a neutral position isaiah 5 and verse 20 says woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter and this kind of goes along with the hypothetical I said just before. 
That person may have known that what you're doing, what you're struggling with understanding is indeed sin. But they don't want to raise a problem. They don't want to be in conflict with you. So what they start doing is saying, okay, yeah, well, the Bible says this about it, but you know what? It's, it's not really as big a deal as this sin over here. And what they do by saying something like that is they put a different label on it. It's like putting a label on some kind of, of poison and that label says poison but you know there are some poisons that are a little more potent than that that maybe this poison won't kill you like this even though it has the potential to be fatal and so you put some different label on it that says kind of hazardous but you know drink at your own risk you really have diminished the label of poison and there may be some who are ignorant enough to come upon that naive enough to come upon that and drink that bottle and maybe they do perish we can't do that with sin. We can't say, well, well, yeah, technically this is probably wrong, but you're probably okay. God's grace will cover it, or, or you're a babe in Christ, so God's not expecting you to come out of that that quick. Or, or maybe we just kind of stumble around and, and we beat around the bush and, and we don't give a clear answer, and they go away thinking that darkness is actually light, that bitterness is actually sweet. We've not only done them a great disservice, but we've sinned. Because we didn't have the intestinal fortitude to take a stance for the truth. In James 5 and verse 19, we're exhorted to, when anyone among us wanders from the truth, to turn them back. And when we do, let us know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Notice, there's a definition given of sin in this. It says, when one wanders away from the truth, that's what sin is. It's lawlessness. You've gone away from the standard of truth. And when you turn him back to that truth, you've covered a multitude of sins because wandering away from the truth is, is sinful. But if we're not objective in our discussion of, of sin and we start taking these kinds of, of neutral positions, then we're not going to be able to restore a brother or sister in Christ. You know, there is a neutral zone that brethren have proposed in Romans, the 14th chapter, as they've taken this passage and twisted it to their own destruction. And we get the gist of why they might turn to this passage to, to avoid some conflict, to maintain peace and unity, even when sin and error arises. It says in Romans 14, 1, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat, judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. And they throw sin into this and suggest that if a person is fully convinced in his or her mind that the sin they're committing is not sin, then who are we to judge that person? God's going to receive him because his heart is honest. It's not talking about sin here. It's talking about eating of meats offered to idols. Really, Romans 14 is talking about a neutral zone, but it's a neutral zone that was defined as a neutral zone by God. It's a matter of indifference. It's a matter of liberty. In 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 8, it says that food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we eat are we the worse. He's saying that it doesn't matter, but be fully convinced, because if you eat meat and you feel like you shouldn't be eating meat, then certainly you're sinning because you're wounding your conscience. But it's certainly not saying that if you're fully convinced in your mind that you know, premarital sex, as long as you're in love, is okay, that that's a Romans 14 discussion. No, the Bible defines it as sin. Let's not define it as anything else. 
people try to throw any kinds of sins. There was a brother who preached a lesson on Romans 14 who gave this list of things that could uh, theoretically be applied to Romans 14 where we ought not to make it a matter of, of fellowship or judgment that God will receive them if they're fully convinced in their own, uh, own mind. And he even had the audacity to place abortion in that list. And really, if you place one sin, whether it be a white lie or murder, it, there's no telling how far it's going to go because logically there's no end. We ought to avoid neutrality when it comes to sin. And likewise, we need to avoid neutrality when it comes to doctrine. The Apostle Paul exhorted Timothy to, to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We see in the context what that means. First uh, chapter of Second Timothy, he said in verse 13, to hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. He said, be strong in the grace in Christ Jesus. Hold fast to the pattern in Christ Jesus. And the rest of the context reinforces the fact that the grace that is in Christ Jesus, Paul is exhorting Timothy to be strong in, is that pattern. It's the word of God. Titus 2 and verse 11 says that the grace of God has appeared to all men and it teaches us. The word of God is part of God's grace. And we've got to be strong in it. Hebrews 8 and verse 5 says we need to make all things according to the pattern. I want to tell you that Christ is not happy with neutrality when it comes to doctrine. He's not happy with this middle of the road area. He wants us to take a side and he wants us to side with the truth. Revelation 2, we see the church in Pergamos guilty of neutrality. When Jesus says, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. He goes on in verse 15. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. And he says, repent or else I will come quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That is his word again. He, it's, it's dividing. But I want us to notice there, he does not say that I have a few things against you. You hold the doctrine of Balaam. You hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. He says you have some among you who themselves hold to the doctrine. You're not holding to it. You're not saying that I believe and I, I'm convicted by the doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and I teach this as truth. He didn't say they believed it, but they were just sitting back. And those people were in their midst. They had taken a neutral position. And Jesus, by saying repent, showed that they were in sin. In Acts 15, we see that error always demands conflict. Christians are to be a people of peace, certainly. As much as it depends or, or, or is within us, as much as it is possible, Romans 12 tells us, but not when error arises, then we've got to go to war. In Acts 15 and verse 1, it says that certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small distinction and dispute with them, they determined with others to go to Jerusalem and address that question with the apostles and the elders. I want us to notice there, he says, they had no small dissension and dispute with them. We wouldn't say it like that. We would say they had a huge dispute. They had a big old debate. They were at enmity with each other, and there was, there was arguments about the truth and about error, and Paul and Barnabas were going to the Scripture, and these Judaizing teachers were denying the faith, and there was a big old conflict. There was no small dissension or dispute. When error arose during that time, people strapped up their boots, grabbed their sword, put on their breastplate of righteousness, grabbed their shield of faith, and went to war. They didn't just sit idly by. You know, 
silence, as we've been talking about, is a form of neutrality. In Acts 20 and verse 26 and 27, Paul made sure that he wasn't guilty of such when he said to the Ephesian elders, I testify to you this day that I am innocent in the blood of all men. Paul, whatever do you mean? What are you trying to clear yourself of? You're innocent of our blood. How? For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. You see, some have this naivete among them, especially I think that babes in Christ can struggle with with differentiating between a congregation that is sound and a congregation that is unsound because we're getting more and more to the point where softer churches, as we describe them, it's not that they're teaching some blatant error. It's not that they're putting up with some blatant sin and saying that it's okay. It's that they're just not preaching the whole counsel of God. There's never a sermon that is specific about an error or specific about a sin. It's always just Jesus died for us, so we need to live good and we need to avoid the bad. And there's no distinctiveness. Really what they're doing is they're being silent on a lot of the portions of Scripture. And Paul said, if I would have done something like that, that's essentially a neutral position, and I would have been guilty of your blood when you did commit that sin, when you did succumb to that error. We cannot be silent. We've got to preach the whole counsel of God. We've got to demand the whole counsel of God. First John 4 and verse 1 said, Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. And that requires a knowledge of what that spirit is teaching. A knowledge of the error. You may have come across someone who thinks that preaching a sermon that is refuting some Baptist error or some Methodist error or even some error you've never ever heard of is a waste of time and is not something that is needed. Because we believe the Bible. We don't believe that, so we don't need to pay attention to that. But First John 4, 1 is specifically telling us, yeah, you do need to know what that error is so that you can compare it and contrast it with the truth and therefore avoid it. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy in First Timothy 4. In verse 1, he said, The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, searing their own conscience, with a hot iron. Notice he mentioned some specific doctrines that will be inherent within that apostasy. They will forbid to marry. They will command to abstain from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. He goes on in verse 6 to say, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. It requires an investigation even of error. If we don't preach on it, if we don't demand it, if we don't know it, and we're not convicted by the truth and standing against that doctrine with that confidence of Hebrews 10, with that boldness and outspokenness of Hebrews 10, we're taking a neutral position and we're not right before God. That would be a, a sin, I think, of omission. Sin of commission would be preaching error. Sin of omission would be not preaching the truth on a subject. Not teaching the truth on a subject. Someone comes up to us and they say, is it wrong that we at my congregation, and we've had that happen here um, before. We've had a visitor come in and he actually, actually talked to some of us, I believe, and was talking about, you know, you said this in your sermon. Is it wrong that even we just give this little amount to this orphan's home? It's just a little amount. We, we're involved in, in this, this effort to, to give money to these people and this institution. Is that wrong? And we've got to decide, are we going to take the side of truth, error, or are we just going to say, well, you know, and leave them with something that doesn't really answer the question. We've got to preach the truth. We've got to take the side of truth, both in matters of sin and error. 
And lastly, I want to apply it to this specific area of evangelism, which is kind of what I just described. Here's a person who is not right with the Lord. They're not a member of the church of Christ that he purchased with his own blood. And we're trying to reach them with the truth. We're trying to submit to the Lord's commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. But what we need to understand is what a disciple truly is, lest we take a neutral position to win them over to the Lord. John 8 and verses 31 and 32 says that disciples are those who abide in Christ's word. They know the truth and they abide in the truth and they're freed from sin. Therefore, they become disciples of Christ. But if we keep something from a prospect of discipleship just so that we can win them over, we're not really making them disciples and we're not really winning them over to Jesus. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 10 in verses 4 through 5, what our goal should be when we're trying to preach the truth and win people over to Christ. Paul, speaking of his spiritual warfare with the error, the, those teaching error in the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 10 in verse 4 says this, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God, and this is what they do. They pull down strongholds, they cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ, and all of that is to serve this purpose, he says, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. When we ignore something we know that needs to be repented of and that life of the prospective disciple, and then they, be, they become uh, baptized for the remission of their sins. And I say, quote, unquote, and we'll speak of why in a minute. We could have pointed that out, and they're not repenting of that sin before they become a Christian. We just left it alone. We've taken a neutral, silent position. They don't become a disciple, and we don't take every captive or every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. For example, I think we'll all remember this. There was a time over a year ago now where a couple came and started visiting with us very regularly. And they were about my age, Logan and Nicole's age, maybe a little older, maybe a little younger, around that age. And they seemed very, very interesting. And me and Russ had some studies with them. I had some studies with them by myself. And, and they kept coming, kept coming, and, and they kept liking what they hear. And that they were convicted of the truth that they weren't Christians. They needed to be baptized for the remission of their sins and, and that the Baptist doctrine was not right and all of this. But we came to find out that they were in an adulterous marriage. I had to bring that up. I had to say, look at what Christ's law on marriage is. And if you really want to be saved, you really want to be added to the Lord, you really want to, to walk in newness of life and be free from sin, you have to repent. You can't keep continuing in this unlawful marriage. And like the rich man, they went away sorrowful and we didn't see him again. What if I had taken a neutral position? What if I had heard that they were in an unlawful marriage, but I decided, well, that's not the biggest deal. That's not really the focus. We'll get to that later. And, and we baptized them and they became, quote, unquote, members here. And they started worshiping with us. Did we do anything for them? We didn't win them over to Christ. They didn't become a disciple. When we evangelize, we've got to avoid neutrality. And we've got to make sure we're actually making disciples with the word of God. In Acts 17.30, the Apostle Paul told the men of Athens, Truly these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. That requires a conviction of truth. 
And not just some truth, but the truth. Galatians 1 and verse 6, the Apostle Paul said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And he says, even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. He goes on to say the same thing in slightly different words. One phrase that we need to keep in mind is that people cannot be taught wrong and converted right. You're converted by the word of God. If you're taught wrong and then you're, quote, converted, unquote, you're not really converted to the truth. If I were to have left that little tidbit out about their adulterous marriage and then they obeyed the gospel, quote, unquote, by being baptized for the remission of their sins, there was something left out. They weren't really taught fully. They weren't taught about the fact that that's a sin they're currently in and they need to stop. It's the same thing with regard to our teaching of those in the denominations. People have accepted those who were baptized in the Baptist church. And just because they were dunked in water and they were doing it because they knew Jesus said to be dunked in water, that that baptism is valid and we can have fellowship with them. They can be added to the Lord's church. But they were taught wrong. They were taught that that baptism was not for the remission of their sins, but to be added to the Baptist church. And you can't be taught wrong and converted right. Because that's not a gospel at all. It's perverted. And the ones who teach it are accursed. And logically the ones who follow it are accursed. Ephesians 5 says that we are children of light. And we ought to walk as children of light. Verse 11. We have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. But we expose them. And that comes with the boldness and confidence and outspokenness of a Christian. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. And notice this. Jesus said, therefore, he says, awake you, or God says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. We need to recognize them for what they are. They're in a moral slumber. They're dead in their sins. And in order to bring them up out and give them life, in order for Christ to give them life, we've got to give them light. Jesus said in John 1 and verse 4, that in him was no life, or John said of Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. That is the truth of the gospel that we are to project. Acts 8 and verse 4 says, Those who were scattered in the persecution, they went everywhere preaching the word. Nothing more and nothing less. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12 and verse 30? That he who is not with me is against me. But he also said this, He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. What we're to do as we go about and preach the word to the lost world is gather sheep gather people for christ and we do that by preaching the truth and if we leave something out if we preach a false doctrine and and they're added and and, and they decide to to act on that then we've not really gathered anything for christ but what we've done is we've scattered we've we've pushed people away from jesus instead of been those who are working in his vineyard gathering up the fruit of his word We've got to take the position of truth and not fool ourselves into thinking just because we haven't sided definitely with the error or the sin that we've done anything good because neutrality in the eyes of God is a sin. First Peter 2 and verse 9 says that we're a chosen generation and a royal priest and a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We proclaim the truth. We proclaim the praises of God. We're walking in the light as he is in the light. We're not walking in some gray area. 
If you're here this morning, we won't beat around the bush in the invitation. What we'll tell you is that you're lost if you have not been added to the body of Christ by being baptized for the remission of your sins. But you can do so this morning. And I'm confident that God's long-suffering to this point was for that purpose in part, to give you an opportunity to obey the truth and become a child of God. If you have obeyed the gospel, but you're in sin, you've done something wrong and you've not made that right, you too are not right with God. You are not a child of His in the truest sense, but you can become a part of His kingdom again by getting out of that power of darkness, submitting once again in penitence and asking for that forgiveness. And we offer you that invitation as well. If there's any spiritual thing that we can assist you with, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing the song that was selected.